you actually see where your fly is all the time. And it's amazing how long it takes in to swing below you. So all these times you think you've let your wet fly swing in and it's on the dangle below you. You'd be amazed how, how many times it's still 20 feet out because that last, that last 10% of the swing takes forever to close. And if you have in the wintertime, if you have fish in high water hugging the bank below you, uh, and you might not be getting your swing into them. So you, it gives you it gives you a really good training on where your fly is tracking. That was Richard Harrington with a nice bonus tip on skating for steelhead. Another epic episode today with the River Rambler. This is the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. Hey, how's it going today? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please head over to wetflyswing.com members and, uh, and support the show. Richard Harrington from the River Rambler podcast is here to share his story and some steelhead tips uh, with a little focused on dry fly, uh, dry fly action. We find out which steelhead hooks he loves, his favorite three spay rods, a new hitch knot you might uh, want to check out, and, uh, and some amazing resources to help you get into it if you're brand new to it, never, never skated one up. Tons of tangents and some nice uh, nuggets along the way. Before we get started, I wanted to take a moment to thank our sponsors. We've got a great new sponsor for the podcast with some very comfortable products. SoFly Gear, headed up by 17-year-old James Carlin of the U.S. Youth Fly Fishing Team, has a buttery, soft, quick-drying line that I have been loving. Head over to SoFlyGear.com and support James and the podcast. The Fly Fishing and Tying Journal has an exceptional fall edition out right now. Head over to ftjangler.com to support the great work Craig and the gang have created just for you. That's ftjangler.com. So without further ado, here's Richard Harrington from theriverrambler.com. How's it going, Richard? Good. How are you? Good. Great to have you on on the show here. We're going to we're going to dig into some steelhead. You, you interview a bunch of uh, amazing steelhead fishermen with that's definitely your focus. Um, before we jump into all that and the podcast that you have going, can you just talk about how you first got into fly fishing? Um well, when I was a kid, I'm one of seven kids. I'm the second oldest. I'm the oldest son. And um uh, my mom was from Joseph and her Oregon and her family from the Wallawas. And I think combination, we, I grew up all around the Pacific Northwest. We, I was born in uh, Hillsboro and we lived in Walla Walla and Nampa and um, back to Hillsboro. Um, my dad worked for General Foods or actually Birdseye at the time and uh, got transferred a lot. And so uh, we spent a lot of time in the Wallawas. I suspect to give my mom a break from some of us. Um, she and my most of my siblings would stay with my grandparents in their little tiny house in Enterprise. And my brother and I would get dropped off at uh, aunts and uncles. And my uncle David, I think he and my aunt Ada didn't have kids. And I think he'd been looking for a fisherman hmm. ever since nieces and nephews showed up. And uh, he fished worms and grasshoppers under, uh, just actually not under a bobber, just uh, with a couple of big split shot on end of braided line with one of those, uh, I don't even know if they still make them anymore, but they used to be able to buy a, like a six pack of prepared leaders. Yep. 
and they'd have a swivel on one end, a clip on the other end, and a leader in between. And uh, he'd put a big old hook on those, and uh, we'd hunt uh, worms or grasshoppers and fish for the day. And I caught my first trout when I was, I think, three. And uh, I was just done. That's all I wanted to do was fish. And I started pestering my folks to go to uh, the Wallawas more often. And um, then, that you know, I was a little tiny kid. But uh, I was probably eight um, when in between watching something else on television, I saw the American sportsman with Kirk Gowdy. Mm-hmm. And they were fishing for Atlantic salmon uh, someplace in Canada. And these guys are fly casting and I was just mesmerized. Um, and as they, as the show went on, I don't remember much about it other than I realized what I had was not a fishing pole. It was a fly rod and I had to learn how to do this. So the reel that I had on there that I lost off the top of my car when I was in high school, um, was an old, uh, Pfluger and, uh, it had some kind of, varnished braided dacron or something on it it was the only line on it but i spent so much time in this yard next to the house trying to learn how to fly cast it my dad finally asked a guy that he worked with um why it wouldn't work for me and he said well, he needs a fly line and so uh the only place in walla walla at the time that was selling fly lines was the hardware store and my dad took me down there and uh the the local expert you know you got to keep in mind it was like a true value with a yeah. fishing section so the the expert down there waggled the rod and said it was a four weight when in fact it's like it's like about about a seven right and uh i think he sold my dad the only fly line he had in stock <laughs> so uh I, I actually had an official fly line and i became more obsessed um i used all of my well not all because we had a pretty strict family policy on saving two-thirds of the money you earned um but uh, I got to spend the rest of the money I earned any way I wanted. So I started getting jobs and started uh, joined the Field and Stream Book Club and started my own fly fishing library. And essentially, I didn't know anybody else who fly fished until I uh, – well, that's not quite true. My neighbors fly fished a little bit. But that was more um, – I don't know, the torpedo bobbers? They would throw a torpedo bobber on a, on a spinning rod with a three feet of monofilament and a fly behind it. Um, so that was, that was as close. That's the first place I saw uh, Orvis catalog was of the neighbors. Um, so my whole intro to fly fishing was Kurt Gowdy, my, my uncle really first, yeah. um, who I fished with every chance I got until he passed away. Um, <clears throat> then Kurt Gowdy. Then my neighbors seen an Orvis catalog that got me started tying flies about the same time I realized, you know, that I had a fly rod. And uh, it's just been kind of wandering since. I started working at an Orvis shop when I was uh, 19, uh, Doug Reed. By then, I was living in western New York in a little tiny town and, and going to school. And uh, uh, Doug Reed owned a shop in Buffalo and opened one in Rochester. And I heard about it before it was opened. And I was there every other day until he gave me a job. And uh, I'd already made enough money working construction to pay for college. So I worked in the Orvis shop and mostly spent my paychecks. Hmm. So that's it. in a nutshell, that, 
That's me. That's it. How did you? So you're. A, sounds like yeah. You're a, you're an Oregon uh, Oregon boy. How, in New York, basically, college got you out to New York. Oh no, my dad got transferred. I never oh. left. Gotcha. Um, my uh, when we left, I was 17, and as my family crossed the border driving, I said, "I'm coming back as soon as I can." Mm. And it was 40 years. Oh wow! So yeah, it's I've been back five years. Holy cow! You um, spent. So you were, so you've been, but that's amazing. Adulthood. Yeah. Uh, I have three amazing kids and, uh, I haven't been married to their mom in 29 years. Uh So, uh, I wasn't going any place without them. And six, six years ago, they gave me permission to move. Oh, wow. Uh, we didn't expect COVID. So it's been a problem because I have four grandkids too, and they're all in New York and it's, um, it's been really difficult. I um, I love being a dad, and uh, I love being a grandparent. It's just crazy awesome. Yeah. And uh, I realized at some point this summer, it's going to be next year before I see them. I was in Colorado doing a gallery loop this summer, and uh, I thought, you know, I could just drive there in two days. I've driven from New York to Colorado a bunch. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought, you know, I, I don't think they know enough yet for me to be comfortable showing up and bringing whatever I'm bringing. Yeah. So we've kind of come to terms with it. it's going to be next year. Yeah, I know. I know the we have an in-law or a, a sister, yeah, sister-in-law, I guess, that she's in New York as well, and she flies all around the world and country. It's like nothing to her. She does it every week, but... Oh, yeah. Really? I mean, she hasn't since COVID, done, you know, she, you know, put it down and hasn't done. Oh, much. yeah. Yeah. But so she's not. Now. No, she's not now. But um, she has made a couple of trips, um, you know, well, she's got they've got another house in Portland as well. So it's kind of weird there. But yeah, I know the, the travel thing. Man, this COVID thing is just putting a little uh, <laughs> making it hard. You know, that's the struggle. But your story. I mean, that's a, really a pretty amazing story. You loved Oregon. You loved fishing. You were taken away because of your family. And, and I mean, and then because of family, you stayed in New York, the place that you didn't maybe. I mean, what, what's the good thing about New York? Well, oh, there's, there's tons of good things about New York. And, yeah. and people out here, when you hear New York, you think of New York City. And yeah, I, I spent in, let's say, how long has Emily been in New York? Probably 10 years, 12 years. Um, before that, in say 23 years in New York, or more than that, 25 years in New York, I'd spent five days total in New York, um, twice to go to galleries and twice because I was traveling and got overnighted in New York and one other time for fun. Um, I'm, I'm not a city guy. Yeah. Um, I enjoy a city for about a day and a half and then I, I need some space around me. Um, no, uh, I lived uh, South Lima, the... Uh, the core of the South Lima Steelhead Society, which I'll tell you about, um, is uh, probably 35 homes in rural farm country in the middle of potato fields in western New York, about 40 minutes south of Rochester. Um, When we moved, I was in high school and we moved to Avon, which is, oh, 15 minutes from South Lima. Uh, When I was first married, I lived in Bloomfield, uh, which is where my kids grew up, uh, which is about 20 minutes the other direction. Um, it's amazing in the fall. If you're going to go to Western New York, go in September and October. Um, my favorite thing in New York is the Adirondacks. Uh, there's just a massive range of mountains up there that 
Uh, I canoed and did canoe trips and hiked all over for years. Um, I got a grant from the Arts Council in New York to paddle the Genesee River from Pennsylvania to Lake Ontario. Um, there's some incredible stuff along there. Um, it's just, I worked really hard at falling in love with the place. Hmm. It's, it's not, it's not my place. I don't, I don't know why I think I'm, uh, somehow imprinted on the West of my childhood. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I, I just, this has always felt like home. Um, I have a hard time outside of going to see my kids. I have a hard time wanting to go anyplace anymore because I don't want to leave Oregon. I mean, I'll, I'll say I, I like going to Washington. Uh, I'm dying to go to British Columbia again, but, um, outside of that, I, I used to want to travel all over the place. Probably it's getting older too and realizing that I, I don't have as much time to do things. Um, and I want to maximize and I, I work a lot. So, uh, I, Oregon and, and one of the things about New York, uh, there's, I have a ton of wonderful friends back there. My kids used to think I knew everyone. Um, and I have to admit that I, I know a lot of people, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, I have tons of great friends back in New York. Um, I miss all of that. Uh, but uh, Oregon calls in a way I can't even explain. It's yeah. some deep visceral thing for me that um, when I'm here, I feel like I'm home. That's cool. Did you do any, while you're in New York, uh, did you make any trips out to Oregon to do any steelheading? Oh, well, um, well, I was a freelance illustrator. I, when I got out of school, I went to school for business and didn't want to do it. Uh, I actually had a panic attack in an interview and, and realized I couldn't do it. <laughs> I went, I ended up going back to school for art, but it wasn't a, it was one of the uh, New York state schools that was a great, had a great business program. And they actually have since disbanded their art program. It it was a art program to round out your major, you know, and some of it to give you credits and other majors. And I got a uh, bachelor of arts degree from that after my business degree. And I got out of school, not knowing what to do. And uh, there was a little, this is all pre-computer. There was a little trade school that um, you could go and learn essentially um, layout skills. It's the way you used to show an ad, what an ad was going to look like before a computer would show you. Somebody had to draw the ad. When I just spent a few year, years learning to draw and paint, and so I saw a set of 500 markers and was like, oh, watercolor and a stick. And at the school, they thought I was like a wizard when, it, in fact, I was just, you know, like three years of hard work of painting. Um, but I got a job in an ad agency and I worked the whole time I was in school. So I didn't really have the college experience. I did have that at that ad agency. It was, um, it was a little mad menish in mm. that, uh, we would oftentimes pick a designated driver for lunch. Um, <laughs> it was kind of crazy. I, I had just a blast working there, but a bunch of stuff happened as I came up on 30 and, uh, I realized I didn't want to be in advertising. I didn't feel like advertising was doing enough good in the world. And so I looked around and I thought, you know, I can draw and paint. Uh, I went to school for business. So I understand the concepts of business and I'm a smart ass. So illustration seemed like a good fit. And I became a freelance illustrator. And my, my biggest goal there was, um, to be self-employed so I could spend a lot of time home with my kids. Um, and for about, Oh, seven, eight years, it worked phenomenally well. Um, I didn't make a fortune, but 
you know, 30 years ago, I was making $65,000 a year. <laughs> and I took anywhere from 10, 12, 14 weeks a year off. Wow. Uh, you know, it was unpaid, but I was making enough money. I didn't care. And almost everything I like doing is cheap. I love to camp and canoe. And I traded for a fleet of canoes with uh, doing design and illustration work. Um, I had worked at the Orvis shop and I was teaching a fly fishing class at the time. So they gave me a good deal on stuff and I had all the rods I needed. Hmm. And uh, 25 years ago, the internet launched and I went out of business overnight. Oh, wow. So uh, I was paddling a lot then. And one of my kayaking buddies is a contractor and he said, Dad, come to work for me. And I did. I, I loved working for my friend, Paul Hount. Um, we just had a blast. We laughed our asses off all day while we did some really fun work for people. Um, but at the time when the internet launched, there were quite a few people out of work and I couldn't make enough money as a carpenter to get my kids through school. I, in Western New York, it just didn't pay that well at the time. Hmm. And I was doing a local arts festival trying to make some extra money. And after three years not selling a painting, my, my neighbor at the show and I were having a beer and he said, why do you do this show? And I said, I don't know what else to do. I think I'm going to declare bankruptcy and try being a carpenter full time. <laughs> I mean, I was being a carpenter full time, but uh, I, I knew if I ramped it up uh, skills wise, I could I could make a little more money. But I still wasn't looking good. And he said, well, where else do you go? And I said, Steve, I've I've been doing this show three years. I've never sold a painting. Why would I go someplace? And he said, don't you know this is the worst art market in the whole country? <laughs> and I said, well, what are you talking about? He says, if you get outside of New York State, you're going to kill it. And I was just baffled. And I said, Steve, just tell me what to do. So he gave me the names of four shows. And I applied to them. And this is still, this is uh, pre, the internet is going, but there aren't really websites and stuff yet. So you're having to mail in for an application. You're having to shoot slides of your work, uh, fill out an application. Because any show worth doing is juried. You don't you don't just get to go do a show. Yeah. Um, but I got into two shows in Florida and one out in uh, Michigan. And the first show I got to in Florida, all my neighbors said, well, you're not going to make any money because you don't have any palm trees or egrets. And I thought, well, I don't <laughs> live in Florida. Of course I don't. And I made like 3500 bucks. Nice. And the next weekend I made, I think, 4800 bucks, And then I went and went back to doing carpentry at home. And then I went to do a show in Michigan and met Lawrence Mathis, a painter from Georgia. And he and his wife just took me under their arm and uh, said, took me out to dinner every night and said, you have to do this because you're going to kill it. And so I went home and worked for my buddy Paul for about five more months and applied to shows and you're because you're about six months out and in my free time got enough work together to take a shot and for about the next 12 years i roamed all over the country doing art festivals um all my free time was given up to windshield time but um i made enough to get my girls through school and my son uh just about through he's got it he's gonna finish yet um and uh, I would just fish in between shows with friends all over the country. But I would always, for about the last, oh, I don't know, I guess it was 11 years ago, maybe 12, um, I started finishing in either Portland or Sausalito. And then I'd fly home for a couple of weeks. And I'd fly back out and get my van. And uh, 
drive up and either fish the North Umpqua or the Deschutes for a week, and then I'd drive home. Um, and man, is that a long drive. Uh, wow. But so I, I was still heading a lot in New York too, but it was the Western trips that I was, I was looking forward to. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's a killer story. The, um, I'd love, I'd love to dig more into the art festival. That sounds like, uh, sounds like a good time there. Um, it might be good. It, it, it is. It, it's almost over right now. Uh, it, COVID has just killed oh, it. Oh yeah. Right. It's good. Yeah. This I, I have so many, I have so many friends that are, um, really trying to figure out, you know, how to sell art in the middle of this. I, I was in, well, I've had several adventures in here, um, but I was in the middle of pro- transitioning over to more galleries and not doing shows. And that's kind of um, saved me is that the galleries were shut down for about uh, three months and then they opened or two months and they opened up again. Unfortunately, I've been selling. Um, but uh, yeah, the art festivals, it's going to be sometime. There's a few that are trying to figure out how I'm to have doing. socially distance art festivals. Yeah. But it's going to be tough. It's not like a um, yeah a, a Zoom art festival doesn't work that well at least right now. No, no. Yeah. Unfortunately, the the thing that does seem to work is if if people see your work and like your work, um, and are in a frame of mind and finances to buy, uh, people there you know twenty percent of the economy is really struggling. Um, some percentage of the economy is still rolling right along. Um, and so there are still people buying art and there are still people mm. making plenty of money. Yeah. Um, gotcha. if Jeff Bezos would buy, you know, a year's worth of art from everybody, uh, the artists would be all set. I know yeah, <laughs> Jeff, Jeff should spread it around a little bit. He's, uh, well, you mentioned the North Umpqua and I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to miss that. Um, because we're, we're, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about this off air, but in Oregon, we're kind of going through this fire storm. It's like apocalyptic, you know, oh, apocalyptic it's thing. It's unbelievable. And it's kind of a sad story, actually, a really sad story. I was down in the North Umpqua my first time I interviewed Frank Moore down there. Oh, you did? Yeah. Yeah, I interviewed oh. Frank. And I actually went to his house and had, you know, we sat down with him and, you know, his wife. And we had just an amazing. I mean, it was, the, I, you can listen, I've talked about that show a lot. But um, the crazy thing is, is that Frank's house burnt down in this fire. They lost everything. Yeah. Yeah, several people lost lost homes. Well, he actually, in a lot of ways, reminds me of of my uncle um, that got me started fishing because my uncle passed away, oh, 30 years ago. Um, but uh, he landed at Normandy. Oh, wow. Uh, and uh, he actually, my brother, actually, my brother is in, in many ways the polar opposite of me. He's extremely organized. And in his kind of man room, he has, uh, oh, I hate saying memorabilia because it's, yeah. So lightweight in comparison to what he's got the stuff that my mom inherited from my uncle, which wasn't a lot. Um, I still wish I had his uh, steel quad Sears and Roebuck fly rod um, that got sold, you know, in a yard sale by somebody. Mm. Um, but uh, he, there's mimeographs of fishing outings that he organized in France where private rich would show up with um, – bait and hooks and you had to have something to use for a rod and line um but he would actually get take guys out fishing and the streams in france oh, wow. um but he won the uh croix de guerre at, at uh the d-day landings oh, um 
it just and he came home and was this quiet sweet gentle carpenter in the Wallawas who got me started fishing wow so i would i would love to get a chance to meet uh frank and at the same time uh you know last thing he needs is one more guy knocking on his door yeah now he needs a now he needs a door well that's so. a, that's what i was thinking about we i was talking to um yesterday <laughs> um um uh, Rick Pope from TFO and he we were talking about that uh, because he's good friends with uh, he was good friends with Lefty Cray and Flip Powell and those guys and we uh, talked we talked about that story where Flip um you know in the hurricane back in the early 90s lost his whole house and uh, uh, and um uh, Lefty Cray <laughs> made his way down in 3 days traveled across the country and dropped him off a sack of $40,000 and said this will be you you can use this more than me and basically gave him their life savings sort of thing or whatever or, or their extra money. Wow. I know. And I thought about Frank, the same thing that that guy needs, you know, he needs that. He needs some, some people to step up and, and, uh, some... well, if people look, there are, um, a few GoFundMe set up already. Oh, wow. Um, and, uh, two, I can't remember their names offhand. Uh, two guys from, uh, Northern California set up one that's gonna benefit Frank. Oh, perfect. Um, and within a couple of days, it had ten grand in it, but that's nice. nowhere near enough. No, uh, I'm scheming. I'm kind of in the middle of trying to get moved back into the house, but I'm trying to get something ready to go. Um, but uh, yeah, there are because there are so many communities in Oregon that have just been devastated along the um, Santium, uh, oh, yeah. along Mackenzie. Um, there's whole town's gone. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's um, there's going to be a lot of help needed. Yep, and a lot. Of, I was at Bogus Creek, Creek, excuse me, Bogus Creek Campground uh, just a month ago, um, and it's it's pretty much burned out. Is that the North Umpqua? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah I kind of bounced back and forth between Bogus and Susan Creek. Oh, okay. Susan Creek was yeah. kind of the luxury resort, That's and right. uh, Bogus Creek was. <clears throat> oh, there's some other ones actually are are more raw because the guy that was the caretaker at Bogus Creek he lost everything. Oh, um, he was down in Glide for the day, and <clears throat> the fire took off, and he lost lost his camper and everything. So there's a there's another fundraiser for uh, him. I can't remember his name. I just met him. What about the old lodge, Frank's old lodge there on the river? Steamboat's still there. Still there. It made it. Um, the Dogwood Motel survived, um, <clears throat> but a lot of homes are gone. Yeah. There's, you know, what the legendary guide shack behind the behind the Dogwood? I just found out yesterday that it survived. Huh. There you go. Yeah, so it's, um, I mean, they just had a terrible fire down there, was it three years ago? Yeah, that's right. I know. It seems like, we're get, they, yeah, I heard of what somebody called it, the, the climate change thing. Somebody called it, um, I can't remember what they called it, but, uh, I mean, it's it's kind of becoming more frequent. That's the scary thing, it seems like. Well, it's when, uh, when we moved back here five years ago, we stopped to pump gas uh, along the Columbia. And um, I don't know if you remember, but the whole, the oh, whole yeah. Washington side was on fire. Oh, yeah. Um, it looked like, uh, the scene from the 13th warrior with, uh, the fireworm coming. Cause it was just this snake of, uh, a fire down the, um, uh, Washington side in the dark. Jeez. And, uh, I wondered if I, I got back just in time to kind of see the end of everything. Right. Um, I hope not. I hope, uh, we can make good choices and, uh, get policies in place to, um, to help move us in a better direction environmentally and uh just the whole the whole planet's gotta gotta yep. make some hard choices yeah i think we're, we're at that 
that turning point for sure. So, well, we've got we've got some podcasting here to, to talk about. I want to dig into a little bit on. Oh, uh, let's let's stay all let's stay all doom and gloom. <laughs> exactly. No, we're, we've already lost probably half the uh, the crowd on the, the the you know if you get into politics or doom and gloom, it's like people. Oh, are, the- Heading out the door. That wasn't politics. That was that was like Frank Moore in North Umpqua. That's true. I mean that river. That river is just magical. Yeah. Why? Why is that river? So the North Umpqua. So I. I've actually. It's crazy. I should be fishing. I should have fished that hundreds and hundreds of times. But that was my first trip actually fishing it when I met with Frank. And the cool story that I have told before, I love telling, is that in the interview I asked Frank. I said, Frank, all right. Here's the deal. I haven't fished this river. What's the one fly you would put on? And he said, I would put on a skunk right now. That's my fly. And so, so I had a skunk. And, uh, and he told me kind of generally where to go. It was below one of the bridges or whatever. And I dropped in below the bridge and fished a water hole that he had fished probably hundreds of times. And I hooked and landed my first steelhead on his fly that night, or I think it was the, that night or the next day. I can't remember, but after that interview and it was like, Oh, wow. that's awesome. Yeah. It was an amazing story. I just sat there and Frank Moore, I just had this amazing conversation and then hooked on his fly on his river, landed a beautiful steelhead. So that's my North Umpqua well, story. Well, I'll tell you my first North Umpqua. I'll tell you two North Umpqua stories. Um, <clears throat> my first one, uh, I'd wanted to go there since like, I, I grew up, you know, reading in my field and stream library of books, uh, reading all my steelhead books. And I saw a steelhead when I was actually, my brother found him uh, two on a red that I didn't, uh, know what they were mm-hmm. just the most gigundous rainbows I'd ever seen. And, uh, they wouldn't take my mosquito that I was drifting by the time we were done, we were standing right next to him, drifting this fly at him, and they wouldn't take it. And I think I was probably ten or eleven, yeah. and uh, that's probably the beginning of my steelhead obsession. But uh, so I'd been wanting to fish the North Umpqua since I was a little kid. So I think it was probably nine or ten years ago. Uh, I was in Sausalito. No, I was in. I was doing a show. Doing the show in Portland over Labor Day weekend. And I went down uh, afterwards. I flew home for a couple of weeks, and I drove down. And uh, staying, uh, I think the John Shuey book that talks about, I think it's Eagle Rock Campground. I stayed there without realizing it's way up river. And uh, so I fished around up there some, and I'm just driving around fishing. And uh, it was actually like three days before I realized all these pullouts. I would get out and just like blast my way to the river, and I realized, you know, there's these pullouts. There's probably a trail. <laughs> So I was just bushwhacking all the time. I was so excited. But I, I went up to see, I was having lunch at the steamboat, and I asked him how to go see Lee Spencer. So I went up to see Lee Spencer, and about two hours into my visit, <clears throat> uh, which was mostly just sitting watching Steelhead with with he and Sis, his pup, mm-hmm. and uh, he said, uh, so you're pretty serious about Steelhead. And I was kind of startled, and uh, I said, uh, well, I mean, it's fishing. I mean, how serious can I be about fishing? And he looked at me kind of funny, and I said, okay, so you know how guys are supposedly really bad multitaskers? He said, yeah. I said, well, okay, I think about work all the time. I'm a guy, so you know, I think about you know what guys think about all the time. And I think about steelhead pretty much all the time. So I think I'm actually a pretty good multitasker because I actually get some other stuff done. <laughs> uh and that got him, I think, laughing a little bit. And so we we visited about fishing. And it wasn't about steelhead anymore. We started talking fishing. And he said, well, the steelhead in this river will come up through 30 feet of water to take a skater. So in the summertime, when the temperatures are up, there's no reason to ever fish anything but a skater. And there's really nothing better to skate than a muddler. Hmm. I 
to that point had caught absolutely zilch on a muddler my entire life. I went through a, a muddler obsession phase in my early 20s where I tied every variety of muddler I could think of and fished it every way I could think of and didn't catch a thing. Hmm. And uh, just couldn't even imagine putting one on again. So he showed me how he hitched him behind the head. Mm-hmm. And uh, I drove back out of uh, the road, out on the main road, took a left to go back up to the campsite to take a nap and then fish the evening and ran into a, a road crew. And I get out and go up to the flagman and said, how long is it going to be? He says, oh, probably 45 minutes. And I'm like, hell with that. So I pulled right off the shoulder there and kind of bushwhacked down to the river and rigged up. And I had one muddler and I hitched it behind the head like Leeds showed me. And I started fishing. And it's a section of river that's in a tunnel of the trees. And I, I mean, I've been going like a bat out of hell for about three months doing shows mm. and about an hour into this, I just realized I'm shot. I need a nap. All right. Not safe waiting. <clears throat> and I happen to be standing about uh, waist deep right next to a big boulder that's flat. And so I hopped up and took my pack and made a pillow and laid down on the boulder and was going to just sleep for, you know, half hour, 45 minutes or something. And I look out and there's a pillow forming in front of this enormous boulder and I'm trying to go to sleep and I'm looking at that pillow and I'm like, well, I, I gotta skate that pillow before I sleep. So I get back up and, um, I make about three casts and just start to the front edge of the pillow, one more cast. And that muddler creeps up and it's literally, I'm almost at eye level with the surface of the water. Cause I'm standing almost waist deep and, uh, I could see my muddler perfectly. And, this nose comes up and just sips it like a trout. Oh, wow. And it was, it was a huge nose. Well, huge for a trout. So it was probably a eight pound buck. Uh-huh. Uh, jumped half a dozen times. I'm, <clears throat> it's jumping as high as my face because <laughs> I'm wading so deep and it's only 40, 50 feet away from me. Nice. Um, and then my, my birthday, I try to fish down there. And <clears throat> three years ago on my birthday, yeah. Three years ago? No, two years ago on my birthday. Um, it was actually the day before because I always try to get home for my birthday so I can fish in the morning. But it's the evening before. I get down to a run that I really love that's always got somebody in it, and there's nobody in it. And uh, I step in and start swinging, and I've, just, I've just got a muddler on. And uh, this enormous fish just rockets out quite a ways down. And I'm thinking, it, it's got to be a king. You know, they'll just jump. And it's, it's thing's got to be a king. It was huge. And like three or four casts later, I hook a fish. Land a uh, really nice little like, oh, I don't know, probably eight-pound hen. And uh, then I've got my birthday fish. I'm happy as a clam. I'm not really thinking about it. And I just keep uh, – get my fly dried out and get it swinging and, and skating again. And I get down. And I don't even know how many casts later, there's just an explosion and I, oh my God, I've, I've hooked, I've skated up to Jack Kings before. And I think, my God, I've, I've skated up that big King and this take, this thing takes off straight down river and you can see it like greyhounding, you know, those long leaps. And I can see the big, big pink stripe on its side. It's a, it's a steelhead. Okay. And well into my backing up the far side, actually came up above me around across the bottom of the riffle and down between me and the, and the bank <clears throat> into my backing again. 
And just as I uh, finally land it, I'm trying to dig a camera out to get a picture of it. And I see my fly floating free mm-hmm. of it. And she'd bent the, she bent the hook out. Oh wow! And uh, all I could do was um, measure against the rod to check later. And she was like 35, 36 inch hen. Wow. So like a 15 pound yep. hen. It was most amazing fish I've caught. Huh. Uh, and then I got one more fish that in the same run that night. No kidding. So I, I will probably, I can't imagine I will ever again, see three fish in an evening on the North Umpqua. I, I just can't. I mean, if I get a fish down there in three or four days, I'm happy as a Yeah. Clam. Is that the deal? Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's not a, you're not going to catch a ton of fish down there. I, you're not going to catch a ton of, ton of fish steelhead anymore. No, anyway. that's true. And back, they actually, uh, the, the Midwest has great runs. Um, there's a lot of fish to be caught in the Midwest. Yeah. But, um, yeah. I was talking to somebody West, recently about that, that said that, uh, who, who the heck was it? Somebody we had on was, we were talking about how the runs right now, the steel runs here in the Northwest are definitely on a downslide, but, uh, the Midwest is, yeah. I mean, it, he was saying like, that that's going to be the place once everything's gone here, you know, it's going to be awesome there. Oh, well, we can't give up on it here. No, no, no. We're, we're, I, I think I always like <clears throat> to point to John. Um, um, oh, uh, let's see. I'm trying to think what episode I had it oh, on. My- McMillan? Yeah, yeah, I had him on, and, and we he did a good breakdown because basically his take was is that we're kind of like we were back in the early 90s when the runs were down, and it's just going to take 10 or 15 years to get back up to where we were in the mid-2000s you know, or so. I hope so. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, the, the challenge is, is that if we are a little lower on that on that curve and it hits down below extinction or something for these populations, then, then you, you do lose some of them. Yeah, I, th- I think that, um, I mean... I'm an artist for Christ's sake. So, you know, my opinion is my opinion. Um, it's, I, I try to keep up on things. There's so many things, uh, that the steelhead are up against, but I think between habitat and ocean conditions, um, if those stay at least somewhat favorable, steelhead will survive. You might catch one a season if you're lucky, but, um, yeah, they'll, they'll, the population yeah, we'll, will survive. Right. I think that's that's one of the benefits of essentially every little creek has a micro population, um, and they're slightly they're slightly different, slightly unique, exactly. and and they all tend to stray. There's a really interesting study going on in the John Day right now about um, yeah, uh, Ian, maybe that there's Ta- a, yeah Tatum, I think yeah yeah there's a um, and I well actually he was the one that was looking for strays. There's a new graduate student doing a new study. I can't even remember what it's about. Oh, okay. Um, but Ian Tatum is the one that I think found out how many fish stray in and go back out and stray in and, and maybe spawn. Who knows? But, mm-hmm. you know, they're all, they cross populate once in a while. Oh yeah. Big time. Big, there's all sorts of, well, um, you know, uh, we're, uh, this is, this is awesome because we're, we're well into the uh, conversation here and I, I haven't uh, really uh, started checking off any of the questions I was going to check in. What, what, one of them was on podcasting because I am, you know, obviously you're a podcaster. Uh, you know, I'm a podcast. I actually have two podcasts now I do. And uh, it's it's kind of an addiction. It's kind of like steelhead fishing. I compare it to the same thing. I'm passionate about only a few things. And one of them's podcasting. One of them's steelhead. I'm not sure what the other ones are. I guess uh, you could throw family in there, of course. But I mean, for you, why why the podcast? Why, why the heck? It's a lot of work. Uh, podcasting, uh, I mean, uh, Well, I, I have, I have uh, two secret weapons involved in this. Um, the whole thing started because of my eldest daughter. Uh, two years ago, we were back for Thanksgiving in New York. And um, when I, I, my friends in New York were like, hey, let's go do this, let's go do this, let's go do this. I'm like, sorry, I'm grandpaing. I'm not doing anything else. Um, 
and I spent a few days up in uh, the Rochester area with my younger daughter. And then Thanksgiving itself, at the time, she and her husband were both working at Target, and they had to work for uh, the weekend. So I went down in New York um, to Long Island to my daughter Emily's. And we had this kind of crazy, fun weekend. And on Sunday, we're getting a little mopey about having to go home. And um, she said, oh, Dan, I forgot to tell you, you're going to have a podcast. I said, what? She goes, you're going to have a podcast. And I said, what are you talking about? She said, you're going to have a podcast. You're the perfect host. And I said, well, first off, I'm really not sure I know what a podcast is. Because <laughs> uh, at that point, I, I knew my son was listening to him, but I had never listened to one. And because uh, I'm 61. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not really on the cutting edge of technology. Um, but she had uh, been in a meeting. She was a communications director at this giant law firm in New York. And they... Uh, an attorney who she's kind of uh, joined at the hip with uh, professionally said, um, we need to have a podcast on energy law. Who knows anything about it? And nobody did. And in this meeting of powerhouse attorneys, my bold daughter raises her hand and says, can we revisit this on Monday? And there's this kind of questioning look, but the guy that she works with a lot is a senior attorney there and said, yeah, that'll be fine. And that's kind of sets the rule. So she went home and watched like a dozen uh, YouTube videos on podcasting, made a list of equipment and went back in on Monday and said, okay, this is what we need. This is what it'll cost and I'll produce it. And they said, okay, fine. And uh, she's a monster. Um, <laughs> they're, they have one of the top legal podcasts in the country. Uh, it's on energy law. Um, then she started a second one and she actually does a whole bunch of other work too. Oh, really? But, but, um, she produces it uh they have a host and she lines up guests does all the production on it and stuff so she said dad not only do you know everybody you talk to everybody i've i've tortured my kids my whole life um with i'm a visitor um i was raised to be my my dad was an executive at bird's eye and most of the places we moved to didn't necessarily have great places to take people to dinner and so my mom, uh, who still uh, is one of my heroes, um, would have us seven kids eating dinner out in the kitchen family room. And she'd have a formal dinner going on, at which she was not only cooking, she was hostessing with uh, executives from Bird's Eye and then General Foods in our dining room. Hmm. And as a kid, we would all be expected to come in and introduce ourselves and shake hands and then do our best to remember everybody's name which is something I still suck at. I can't mm-hmm. remember names to save my life. Um, but I'm, I'm uh, for a guy who grew up painfully shy, um, I'm actually really comfortable dropping into a, a group of people um, and just visiting. Um, the thing I said to my daughter is, well, I had throat cancer eight years ago. And so you can't tell because I'm using a microphone, but I'm not loud. Mm. Uh, I grew up, I grew up, I was always the loud kid, you know, that, hey, Rick, can you get everybody's attention from like first grade through working jobs? You know, hey, get everybody's attention. The only thing I can do loud anymore is whistle. Hmm. Um, but uh, my son said, well, dad, you'll just use a microphone. And I said, I don't even know how to hook a microphone up to a computer. And he goes, oh, I'm going to take care of that for you. And I look over and I realize that they've got something scheming. Um, 
that uh, Todd, my son Todd, is my other secret weapon. He he does all the production. Mm-hmm. All I have to do is is sit and visit. He does the recording. He does the editing. Because um, I still work way too much uh, painting mm-hmm. um, to probably have time to to go after this on my own. Um, so then I I was kind of up in the air about it, and uh, my daughter said, "Well." Dad already named it. And I said, what are you talking about? She goes, you're going to be the river rambler. And I said, oh my God, I'm not going to be the river rambler. Because <laughs> all that made me think of was uh, in the river Y. In yeah. In the river Y. Oh yeah. And uh, the main character's father, I can't remember what his name is, but he's like the dork professional fisherman. Oh, right. I, if he had a podcast, it would be called the river rambler. That's right. <laughs> and so I was like, I'm not going to be the river rambler, but but I got outvoted every, and my son bought the name while we were sitting there visiting. So, exactly. um, and then it's turned out that people seem to like it. So yeah, it's uh, good. It's good. It's, it's actually, my kids put me up to it. And then what m- my daughter was right that the first time I sat down with somebody, um, I suckered my friend Adrian Cortez into being my first guest. Yep. And I think my third guest, um, cause I knew he'd be tolerant of me. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, I actually have fun doing it. Yeah. Um, I listened to that one. So, that, that was good. I haven't had him on yet, but that, yeah, it was good. Well, it's been it's been uh, a gateway to meet uh, people, and I'm I'm not um, I don't have any big aims in terms of making a business out of it. It's yeah. kind of a sideline. It's uh, it's developing a skill set for my son um, that he is, will be usable for him. Um, I have fun doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's given me a chance to introduce myself to people that I'm, I'm not real bold about, I'm comfortable visiting with people, but I'm not real bold about walking up and saying hi. Like if I was, I would have met Frank Moore 10 years ago. Yeah, that's right. Um, but I thought, you know, what's he need one more guy showing up on his doorstep saying hello. Yeah. Um, but, uh, this has given me a purpose to kind of get over that and say hi to people that I might not have otherwise. That's cool. Uh, and it's been fun. Yeah. Sounds like the perfect fit, Roy. I mean, it, it, I love it that your kids basically put you up to it. And I mean, my kids are a little bit younger. They're six and eight, but I would hope that yeah. when, they, when they get old enough to do this, that that's the sort of things that they, they would know me well enough to be like, you know what, you need to do this thing, even though I, I don't know the tech. And so I love that story. That's awesome. It's a family thing. And then, and so what, what the energy law, do, do you remember, or do you know the name of that podcast? Um, I think it's Currents. Let me... Currents. Okay. I'm just curious. I'd, I'd love to. I'm always, I'm actually the opposite of you. I listened. I've. I was addicted to podcasts way before I started a podcast. So I'm. I always. Oh love, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I always love listening to new podcasts, and I do a little bit of actually. That's what my other podcast is about: is teaching people about podcasting, online marketing. Oh, cool. So yeah. I'm. I'm looking on my phone right I, now. And if you can't find it, I could put it in the show notes and get it later too. Yeah, it's Currents from Norton Rose Fulbright. Oh, okay, perfect. So it's the law firm. Awesome. Yeah, I'll put a, I'll put a link to that. And yeah, it was interesting because I remember when I first saw your just my first take on the River Ramble. I liked the name, you know, because it just gave you that name, like okay, the you know the River Ramble. I could see that. And then your voice was the other thing that actually stuck out. I was like, wow. <laughs> I was like, man, this guy sounds like Batman. This is like some this is some this is some crazy stuff. You know, you sounded. And then once you get into it, you listen. You're like, okay, I, I see. He's on the same page. It's all about Steelhead and. You know. It's funny. I just I just had Josh Mills on, and he uh, sells advertising for radio, and we had not met in person. And uh, as soon as we connected, he said, "Oh man, you got the voice for this." 
And the funny thing is my, what my voice sounds like still, uh, I guess it was six years ago. The, my oncologist tried to rebuild my throat. Um, and, uh, it, it held, it sounded like my old voice for about a week. And it turns out I scar so heavily, my scarring pushes the implant out of the way and goes back to what this sounds like. I, I don't sound like me to me. Hmm. Um, it's, it's uh, the guys I striper fish with. Um, one of them used to always be saying, come on, do deadliest cast intro for us as we were getting out of the, out of the truck at the Cape. Because um, I used to say I sounded like Mike Rowe. Um, and now I don't know. Now I don't know who I sound like. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> so think, I, I guess I'll, I'll take Batman. Yeah, take Batman. <laughs> I think that's the perfect. Uh, what about the, I'm always interested in other podcasts. So your kids set it up, but what is your, what's your, um, your tech gear? What, what are you using for a microphone and stuff oh, like that? Um, we're using a garage band to edit with. Oh yeah. Um, uh, we looked into it, um, with having throat cancer. Um, I had about, uh, five, six year stint where, um, I kind of, my career parked, let's say, <laughs> um, I was not doing as well as I had been before. I was surviving, but not, uh, so I didn't have budget. So we got in for two of the snowball microphones. Yeah. Snowball is what my dog. Yeah, exactly. Uses. Yeah, yep. they're, they're affordable. They work really well. Yeah. Um, I would like to have a mobile setup that is not my laptop. Yeah. I'll tell you exactly what you need, Richard. I just to put a, uh, let you know, there's a couple of things as I, this is kind of what I do on the other podcast, but for a mobile setup, they got a new thing coming out. You should check this out. It's only it's two hundred bucks, which is pretty uh-huh. cheap comparatively. But it's oh, called yeah. it's called a Zoom Pod Track Four, and it's actually it's actually I haven't used it. I, I'll put that out there. But Zoom is awesome. I'm 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 talking into I'm recording into a Zoom H6 right now. They're they're a great company. But the great thing about the Zoom Pod uh, Track Four is that it's tiny. It's the size of a checkbook, and you can t- and it, you could plug in four microphones. Really? You could plug in a cell phone. You, you can plug in you can plug in four microphones. Yeah. Four microphones, XOR, you can do that. Four microphones, it's it's amazing. I mean, I have a Rodecaster Pro, which is about six or seven hundred bucks, and that thing is more of a. It's bigger. You wouldn't take it, but this little pod track, I'm. I'll let you know. I'm actually Monday. I'm getting my new. I'm getting the new one. and I'm going to test it out. So if it's good, I'll let you know. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, I'm trying to look. I'm looking. This. I thought I still had a a window open. This is this is how techy I am. Uh, a friend of mine. In Crested Butte sent me a link. He does, uh, he hosts a uh, music show on their public broadcasting station in Crested Butte. And uh, <clears throat> and he's also, uh, well, he's multi-talented. He's also a fabulous guitar player. But um, he's doing a little bit of recording outside of it. Oh, so you're using the same, or something similar, Zoom. It's an HN4 Pro Handy recorder. Yeah, so there's there's a bunch of there's H4. I have the H6, which was last year the newest. Now there's actually an H8, I think, or something like that. But the, it's, so he had recommended the H4. Yeah, the H4 is great. I think they're all great. Uh, the H6 but actually gives you two more. <laughs> gives you six XOR ports. So that um, this Pod Track Four is smaller. It looks like and gives you four portals and the big thing about the pod track four which the other zooms don't do the h6 none of those you can't plug anything in like you can't plug a cell phone into it that's the problem right so you can't do remote oh so now you can actually have four people in person but you could also plug in a cell phone and call somebody anywhere in the world and record it well now with the with the 200 um 
there's two built internal mics and then you can plug mics into it. Yeah. So is the, is the pod track, this talk about going off track. You know, this is good. <laughs> this is my favorite. You can just go to, go to outdoorsonline.co and you can listen to a bunch of nerd, all this all day long. But, um, <laughs> I, I, the pod track for, I'll let you know on Monday when I get it, I'm going to test it out. Um, I don't know all the details. I just know that it's very, it's pretty much like a Rodecaster Pro. So it has the four inputs for mics. And then the big thing is you can add the cell phone. That That's like the big feature because how else would you record remotely, you know, talk to somebody remotely other than like here, yeah. we're talking on Skype. Skype is the one, but you have to have a computer for that. Well, and the problem, we started using Skype, but we were getting too much corruption. Um, corruption. Oh, just your, you mean like while in the files. Right? Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then we haven't, we've, we've occasionally had that problem with zoom when, uh, I think it's whenever who we're talking to is in an area that there's a lot of, um, traffic Yeah, and yeah. the bandwidth is, yeah, is that's compromised. A, that's why zoom, the, the big tip with Skype is, is that you have to, if you're going to do Skype, you have to turn everything off, shut down all. I, yeah. I know. I like the face to face. I'm better talking that way. Yeah, I know. I know the the non I've I've always been just audio, so I just it's been I'm used to it. It's kind of thing, but um, so I want to take us again. Well, we could talk more about the techie stuff. Uh, we could follow the, up on that later. But um, so the podcast itself. I mean, you've got you had voice surgery. I mean, you've obviously. I was listening to a um, a comment on Spay pages. Somebody was just raving about you know how you, your your style and stuff. And so you're doing a good job. What's your long term? Are you going to be able to keep doing this long term? I mean, there's really no end to I had a friend of mine uh, two years ago, we were having a beer, and he said, so do you trout fish? And I said, well, I um, I have a whole bunch of uh, like two through six-weight fly rods, and I have a whole bunch of hooks from 24 to, uh, you know. Yep, 12. Eight. Yeah. But I don't tie those anymore, and I don't fish those anymore, so I don't know. Um, I still, I still do like to, but one of the things out here is I can, um, steelhead fish, you know, you're out. about the only time, you're, about the year, the only time you're really not steelhead fishing is in May. Um, there's, there's places I can swing flies. Um, and because there's something about it too, that, um, in the summertime, I mostly skate. In fact, I only skate, uh, oh, really? which, yeah, it's, it's actually, it's funny, um, there's a, a few of us that stay in touch more than we get to fish together, but we, we just skate. And, uh, if swinging flies is the least effective way of catching fish, skating cuts that down even more. Let's get it, Richard. Let's get into that because I, I just want to hit on this. I love that you said skating because my podcast, I do it in seasons. Sometimes they're really long uh -huh. seasons, but I started out steelhead like you, right? It was all steelhead season one. But then I was just kind of like, well, you know, where am I going to take this podcast? So I started taking it everywhere and we went into trout fishing a season and destinations. Uh -huh. and, now, and now I came back and now we're just starting season five, which is dry fly fishing, right? Oh. So, so I, it's a little bit of a focus, you know, on trout, but obviously tons of people are listening right now are steelhead fishermen. And so I love that dry fly that it technically is dry fly fishing, right? Even though it's steelhead. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so well, let, would, let's would talk about that. Try, I would love to, um, find a place where I could throw and dead drift dries for steelhead. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the guys fishing bombers for Atlantic salmon and, um, uh, just fishing to them like they're rising trout. Oh, wow. Uh, I would, I would love to have a chance to do that. But, um, 
what I mostly do is skate. Um, people who are really intense about it want to fish a close line and keep really close track of everything and watch for rolling and rising fish. And I, you know, I've, I don't know. I just don't care that much. That's, that's, I guess part of my thing is that I enjoy the act of fishing so much that me yeah. catching the fish is, is the frosting. Um, I'm going to have a great day whether I've, whether I've hooked fish or not. So I go back and forth between, um, you know, you show me a fish rolling, I'm going to get in, in focus and really try for it. <clears throat> but otherwise what I like to do is fish the water. Yeah. Any place that I think is going to hold a fish, I try to cover it. Um, if I have time, I'll cover it two or three times, two or three different ways. Um, but I'm mostly, I'm working on a, a bug. It's just a variation, a combination of a bunch of different bugs I've seen. Um, but I'm mostly in the, for the past, ever since Lee Spencer said, you know, mm-hmm. skate a muddler, I've mm-hmm. been skating variations on a muddler. Um, my muddler is, uh, really pared down. It's, uh, a little bit of braid for the body. Um, a couple of strands of flash underwing, and then I spin the head so that the back of the, the kind of collar becomes the, the wing. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's real simple. I leave a little, a little neck in front of the, um, head to have room to hitch it on. Um, pretty sparse lately. Um, or like not, not, not a dense, I don't like a bullet head. I like yeah. a softer head, softer, um, yeah. on, on Todd Hirano's blog, um, a few posts back, I did a, a guest post hmm. for him and it, there's a picture of the fly. And at some point I'll have, um, the fly oh, up. Cool. And so I'll have, I'll put the fly up on South Lima steelheads. This might be the thing that gets me to do it. I'll, I'll put a post up on the South Lima steelhead society. Um, I, uh, I just played around with it until I got to skate pretty consistently. Um, so the, the kind of most recent variation is, um, Adrian has been tying skaters on a down eyed hook. And then there's a fly, there's a, a knot called a garrot hitch. Um, developed by a guy over in the Wallawas. Instead of Garot, yeah, like uh, G-A-R-H-O-U-T-T-E or something like that. Uh-huh. Maybe it's Garut, I don't know. Okay. Um, which always makes me think of, you know, the, the assassin with the loop of wire. <laughs> but um, it uh, you come up through a down-eyed hook, so you're literally, um, you know, the, the down-eyed hook, it's the exact opposite way you'd think of doing it. Yeah. But then you do a um a knot down onto the shank but what that does is makes your fly perpendicular to your tippet so it's essentially pre-hitched and then amy hazel put a uh, note up last year about the salmon fly hatch um about a swivel knot so you put it you have a down-eyed hook you come up through it um and with steelhead i just take and double the tippet over and put a double surgeons in and then um and not around anything, just at the end of the tippet. And then you clip off the loop at the end and the tag end. So what you have is your tippet with a stopper knot on it. And slide that back down to the eye of the hook. And again, you're coming up from the bottom of the down-eyed hook. And what you have is a fly that won't uh, tangle, that won't spin your leader because it just spins all the way around that tippet. But I have not yet hooked a fish on that knot, but Adrian has landed a few fish on that knot and not any trouble at all. So I've kind of gone to that, uh, switched cool. from using a down-eyed hook to a, or an up-eyed hook to a down-eyed hook. Okay. I have to admit I'm a sucker for an up-eyed hook. 
I yeah. just think they're elegant. What what but, uh, um, what hooks does it matter? What up eye hook you, you use? I I love the blue heron hooks. Yeah. Um, I think it's Dave McNeese is, yeah. is making those. Yeah, I just had McNeese. Um, McNeese actually just a few weeks ago. McNeese was on. Yeah, I just I just saw that. I didn't listen to you. I just saw you had that. Um, yeah, he, but oh, yeah. When it's at some point, you'd ask me about a podcasting. That's part of my my thing is that I'm just interested in other people who like to fish. So um, I've had a few people that are, that are pretty well known, and I've had some friends that you know, nobody knew before. And I I just want to talk about fishing. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Here you go. FTJ Angler has a great fall edition that's out right now. You can find Lucas Stevens, who visits Winston Fly Rods in the uh, fall edition for an insider look at, and a rare interview with writer Ted Leeson, someone I hope to have on the podcast soon. Patrick Wall pays homage to Harry Lemire's Tide in Hand Atlantic Salmon Flies displayed in the Marguerite Salmon Museum. Boots Allen takes us to the pond with a masterclass in Stillwater. Dennis Dobble travels to Scotland in search of Atlantic salmon. Plus, FTJ Deputy Editor Henry Hughes with a mysterious fly fishing story and Nora Etsy with her poem, No Business, which I actually tried to read unsuccessfully a few podcasts ago. I'm not sure if you remember hearing that. So um, I'd love it if you could press pause right now, head over to ftjangler.com and subscribe so you get the next issue delivered right to your inbox. That's ftjangler.com. Soflygear.com, led by chief apparel guru and U.S. youth fly fishing all-star James Carlin, has a clothing line you're going to love. Sofly's mission to produce clothes that look good, perform well, can be worn on and off the water, and most importantly, are manufactured under rigorously sustainable methods. How do they do it? Bamboo, in a single word, a fabric that is buttery soft, to the touch, durable, sun-resistant, and embossed with original designs and artwork. I've been wearing the SoFly hoodie on my last couple of uh, steelhead trips, and it's been a game-changer. Whether hot or cold, wet or dry, I've been uh, feeling perfect in pretty much all conditions. I just... I t- haven't taken this thing off. I mean, it's been it's been pretty awesome. So, totally support SoFly here. If you're ready to up your apparel game with this uh, lifestyle fly fishing gear uh, brand, head over to SoFlyGear.com. That's S-O-F-L-Y gear.com to get started today. And like I said, I've been loving it. So uh, pick up a hoodie uh, and you'll be like me and you'll be good to go. Okay, back to the show. How do you choose your, your I mean, obviously you've got some friends on there. How, how do you choose your guests and how do you how do you get them on? Um, I just call them and ask them or send them a note and ask them. Um, it kind of goes on who I run into. Uh, sometimes somebody will suggest somebody. Um, what it was, what I really had hoping it would be was to go to Poppy's Clave and meet people, yeah. stuff like that. But but none of that stuff's happening right now. No. Nope. Um, so it's mostly, um, well, it's it's what it's what Emily originally said. I'm I'm good at meeting people. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know why. I just am. Yeah. Um, I'm uh, for a guy who spends most of his time alone working. I'm fairly sociable. Uh, and so I, I just meet people and when I meet somebody I think they'd be fun to visit with yeah. let's do a podcast <laughs> <laughs> do you have a bunch of podcast episodes in the queue right now all lined up completed or do you no we're, pro- we're probably uh, two ahead yeah right now um, we had a kind of a lull this summer um, 
I had a, again, with, with COVID, I wasn't quite sure what was going to happen. Um, my two best galleries, uh, in terms of turn and work over had shut down for a few months and I was trying to figure out, you know, my way forward. But I also know that, you know, if I don't do work, I'm not going to make a living. So I had quite a bit of work going and then the galleries were opening up again and I, um, lined up a drive to Park City and to Colorado and to Jackson. And I just had to get work done. And I finally got to a point where I didn't have time to, to mess with this. And I spent about uh, two months just, you know, head down, working my ass off. Yeah. And I got behind. And then uh, yep. that's about the time we tried Zoom and I realized how, how well it worked. Um, I'm actually really surprised at how effective a communication it is. Mm-hmm. Um, Way, I think way better than talking on the phone uh, oh, yeah. with my family and with my grandkids and stuff. It's it's really nice to to see and mm-hmm. um, the interaction you have. So it's been an effective way of visiting with people. So um, so that kind of got me rolling again. And and mm-hmm. uh, I I have I don't know twenty people that I in the back of my mind I've written down on a list that I'm just kind of working my way through. And I'm sure by the time I get five more in, I'll have twenty more. Oh yeah, and then you'll have so, hundred and twenty. Yeah, it's it's not it's not hard at all for me to think of people I'd like to visit with. No, it might just be some guy I met in the parking lot, and we started talking about rods. That's cool. Um, I between um, oh, I should I should give two shout outs here. Yeah, uh, one, um, well, actually three. I was in Jackson uh, to drop off work at uh, I show at Rare uh, Gallery there, and uh, I went in. I used to go to High Country Flies all the time. Um, it was just my favorite fly shop there. Just really normal, mm-hmm. decent, great guys. A lot less attitude than you find some places in Jackson. Mm. Um, and I stopped in one day just to pick up some flies and ask what was going on. I was just going to trout fish. And just as I turned to leave, the, the guy working by the counter said, oh, Howard, uh, Howard Cole was one of the two owners. He said, Howard's running an intro to spay down on the snake tonight. And I just spun on a dime. Hmm. Um and I said, wait, where? How do I get down there? And he gave me directions. And I said, what time? He says, they just left. They're down nice. there now. So I, I ditched uh, fishing for the night and drove down and met Howard Cole, who I'd met in the shop before, but I never knew him. And it wasn't a formal thing. He was just trying to help people get started. They had, you know, half a dozen rods down there, and there were probably half a dozen guys. And I tried half a dozen different rods. And um, I said, well, you know, Howard, if I make any money soon, I'll, I'll buy a rod from you. And he goes, I don't worry about it. Where are you going next? And I and I said, uh, well, I'll be out. Uh, I think on the time I was on my way to Sausalito, and uh, he said, well, man, if you're going to be out in, in Oregon or out that way, you got to call Kerry Burkheimer yeah. and Bob Miser. So, early days of the internet. This is what actually how long ago is this? This is fifteen years ago. Um, Kerry didn't have a website. He had a uh, a placeholder with a phone number. And I kept calling the phone, and there was no answer. And uh, I, at the same time, I'm on the road. I'm driving towards Sausalito. But, of course, I'm going to go through Oregon to visit family and fish first. And uh, I called Mize up, and I said, uh, hi, I was wondering if I could stop by your shop and uh, look at rods. And he laughed and said, well, my shop is just me and three friends wrapping rods in my garage, but you're welcome to stop by. And, uh, he, uh, had me over and, uh, we drank scotch and visited for a couple hours and picked out a rod that I was going to get at 12, six, uh, six, seven Highlander. 
And uh, he said, what are you doing out here? If you live in New York. And I said, well, I'm, I'm out here for work. And he goes, what are you doing? I said, I paint. He says, you're out here to paint houses? And I said, no, I, I paint pictures. And he goes, oh, got any with you? And I said, I got a whole van load. He goes, can I see? So out in front of his house, uh, I pulled a painting about halfway out. And he says, I trade. And I said, what? He says, I'll trade you a painting for a rod. Hmm. And I looked at him. I said, I know what painting you want. He says, you do not. I said, I, I do. And so we talked numbers. And I said, this is the size painting you're looking at. And he said, that's great. And I said, okay, it's going to take me a minute to dig it out. So I started handing him paintings just as they're in my way. And he's laying them out on his um, on his parking strip. And uh, he said, uh, I think I got it narrowed down to three. And I said, that's because you haven't seen this one yet. And I held a painting up. And he said, oh, my God, that's the one I want. Huh. I said, I knew it was. Just like you knew what rod I needed. Yep. And Bob, Bob is a magician. When he can talk to, I swear, anybody in the world and figure out in a half-hour conversation what rod is going to fit them. He's like, he's a wizard. Wow. Um, but for years, I would um, cast different rods, and I was a Highlander guy, and he has two lines of rods of the Highlanders. Well, he has kind of three, but the Highlanders and the MKX, uh, MKS at one point, but it's the Mike Kinney series. Oh, yeah. um, and I hated those rods. Oh, my God, I hated those rods. Huh. I could not, I felt like I was, had a war club in my hands. And... Uh, Back in, uh, when I was still back east, uh, Kevin Hospodar and I ended up fished together, and he had an MK with the same grain, grain window as my Highlander. And just on a whim, I said, hey, can I throw my uh, my reel on your rod and give it a show, give it a go? And he says, sure. So I fished it for, well, I fished it for three casts and said, oh, my God, what's happened? I love MKs. <laughs> so I called Bob up, and I said, so what's the deal? I Did you change these? He said, no. And I said, well, you know, I've tried like half a dozen over the years and I hated them. And now I love them and I want to redo all my whole, at the time I think I had seven or eight spay rods. And I said, I want all MKs. Mm. He said, oh, congratulations. So it took you 12 years to learn to use your bottom hand. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and and he was absolutely right. Wow. Um, there you go. That's uh that's a big struggle for a lot of people, me included, you know, I mean, the, the spay cast, which we've talked about some on here. Um, so so maybe it's oh, not about the rod. From, <laughs> oh, if you come from single hand background, uh, to get your top hand to be quiet is yeah is just a full time job. I quit single hand fishing for I think uh, eight years uh, because I couldn't quit using my top hand. So I I was actually the biggest bass I ever caught was in Texas fishing with a friend, and I got it on a Deck Hogan uh, mm -hmm. the four weight um, Echo that they used to make. Oh. Uh, I was bass bugging with a with a spay rod, um, and then uh, actually uh, at Spay Nation back in New York is is the clave back there. Uh, Josh Lynn and Andrew Moy were single hand casting, and then Whitney Gould was repping LTS Scandinavian Company, and she pulled out some single hand rods, and she's a phenomenal caster. And I watched those guys, and I thought I got to start single hand casting again. I forgot how much I love it, but it's um, but I just that's it goes back to me seeing uh kurt gowdy fly casting i love fly casting yeah um if if i wasn't fly fishing i wouldn't fish yep i don't i don't have i don't no. have any desire to catch fish so i'm not fly fishing no i know there's something about the cast it's that's uh well we've, we've talked about that too that you know what makes fly casting right because you have all these different types of fishing where uh you know 
a good example like the Euro nymphing. I mean, they're they're almost not using a fly line. It's kind of different. And but I think you ha- kind of have to have the cast. If you're not fly casting, then you're not really fly yeah, fishing. Yeah, I, right? I have some I have some dear friends that are Euro nymph fiends, and they're trying to recruit me, and I'm like, no. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> it's, it's just it's just. And at the same time, I have uh, friends who mock the crap out of Tenkara. Yeah, and I can't wait. Next next time my grandkids visit. I'm picking up a Tenkara rod, and yeah. we're going to go smallmouth fishing. Yeah, Tenkara, I think, is good. Um, I had a question here, uh, Richard. This is uh, from the from the uh, email log, but this is just uh, uh, Joel here uh, had a good question. And I'm not sure how much you know about just rods in general, but he was asking – he was kind of checking on moonshine rods. I'm not sure if you heard about them, but they're a smaller company. I- they are smaller. I don't know anything about them. Yeah, Moonshine. So, but he was more of a general question. He was saying he was kind of questioning about Moonshine. You know, the smaller companies. How good are they? And then he talked about um, you know Maine Fly Rod Company. And then he got into Beulah, Leland, Red Truck, all these companies that are not the the Megan. Actually, Temple Fork Outfitters, who we talked on you know the recent podcast, uh, we talked a lot about how they do it. And basically, they have their own um, factory in Korea like exclusive, yeah. nobody else. But it's interesting with the rods because like when somebody says that, I mean, what are there any, I mean, people say there are no bad rods, but I mean, what's your take on the rods out there? Does it, do you just find one that fits you and don't worry about the name? Um, well, that's, that's actually the beauty of spay claves. Yeah. Um, that, uh, you can try every rod. The problem is until you learn to cast, yeah. um, you don't know what you got. That's it. So, um, the single best advice I can give to anybody starting spay casting is take a lesson. I taught myself to fly cast single hand as a kid and then um, got to the point where I'm a solid fly caster. I'm not uh, – one, one of the things I love about fly casting is you can always get better. Um, somebody will compliment me on my fly casting and I'll think you need to get out more because there are some phenomenal casters and I'm not one of them. Yep. Um, and uh, – so I think take a lesson, mm-hmm. um, buy a basic intro rod, but, um, a classic, a classic, uh, I don't, I don't want to name him and embarrass him. Yeah. Yeah. A, a very dear friend of mine, uh, was always about, um, just cheap, cheap rods. He was using Cabell's. He's a, he's a yep. phenomenal, he's a great caster. Uh, he's one of my skating fiend buddies, uh, which is, which is enough that he'll, Recognize yeah, we can narrow about. down, yeah. <laughs> but um, he uh, he was using all Cabela's rods, loved them. He cast really well with them. Um, and he said, I just, you know, it's just a rod. It doesn't make that much difference. And we were standing next to each other, and I had a uh, little, uh, what's a, I'm terrible at saying the numbers right. Oh. It's the 11 foot 5, 5 weight Berkheimer. It's a, oh, yeah. just a sweet little rod. And uh, I handed it to him. He said, what? I said, just cast it. And he made three casts of you guys, and he said, "Oh my God, they are different." Yeah. <laughs> I said, "Oh, they're they're way different." Yeah. Um, I think it it depends on your development as a caster. Uh, that's one of the things that mice helped me understand was that um, there's different rods for different people. If you come from a strong single hand background, the Highlander Classic is is a great rod because mm-hmm. it lets your top hand be more involved and still throw a beautiful cast and there are people who are phenomenal casters that use a lot of top hand but um then there's like scandinavian rods i don't really care for it they're real real stiff in the butt uh actually up through the midsection of the rod and softer in the tip and if you watch a video of guys scandy casting that tends to be 
not, not, I'm not, I'm not an rod expert yeah. by any stretch, but that tends to be what you see. And if you pause a video and look at the bend in the rod, the majority of the bend will be up in the tip. Um, mm -hmm. When I got sick, I was pretty down in the dumps. Um, two of my sisters were sick at the same time, and um, my oncologist claims it's because I was, I'm Irish that I was sure my number was up. <laughs> um, but uh, I had been before I got into spay, I was going to be a bamboo junkie because um, I love bamboo rods, mm -hmm. and uh, that's what, I mean. That's what I started with. It was an old governor, my uh, my mom's, and uh, I was going to get a, a couple of bamboo trout rods and then i got into spay and decided well i'm just gonna do spay instead and then i got to a point where i thought you know what why don't i get a bamboo spay rod exactly and so i'd been looking at bob clay and i was looking at this at the time guy was just starting to show up on the scene james reed and was looking at uh his rods and uh, so i was really kind of down in the dumps i didn't i wasn't making enough money to afford a, a rod that i way beyond my means and I came up with this scheme. I my first got started illustrating uh, fly fishing stuff for Fly Rod and Reel, oh, for wow. Orvis, for Fly Fisherman, um, and I had backlogs of just piles of these little pen and ink drawings, and pencil drawings, and a couple of little watercolors. And at the time, I was I spent a lot of time hanging out on the Drake Magazine forum, um, which is not as lively as it used to be. Uh, it was it was nuts for a while. It was hysterically entertaining um, and brutally harsh. But uh, I don't know that people knew I was sick, but I came up with this idea to uh, to buy a bamboo spay rod by selling off these illustrations. And I sold them cheap because I had enough of them. I needed anywhere from from 50 to 100 bucks for them to have more than enough money for a rod. So I got the money and I called up James or I sent James an email. I said, okay, I want to buy a rod. He says, well, you know, which rod do you want? It's three-year wait. Oh. I was like, damn it. I'm three years. I might not be alive. <laughs> and, uh, so I got on the list and, uh, in the meantime, got the chance to move back to Oregon. So, um, just after he got back here, James sent out a note that he was going to be doing this, uh, demo on the, uh, Sandy. And I thought, holy shit, I get to go down and, um, try him. So James handed me a rod to try. And he said, are you a finesse caster or a power caster? And I said, well, I, I, you know, I've been at this a long time, flag fishing. And, you know, by this time I've got 10 years in the spin. I'd like to think I've got some finesse. And I took this rod down and I, and, oh my God, I hated it. I just, I couldn't believe I'd paid more money than I've ever paid for a rod. And I hated this mm -hmm. rod. And I turned around and I walked back to him trying to put a happy face on and I didn't know what to do. And he said two things. Uh, that's not your rod. And I said, wait, what? You have a different taper? And he goes, oh, yeah, I got a way different taper. <laughs> I said, oh, thank God. And he said, oh, by the way, you're totally a power caster. I was like, damn it. <laughs> I thought I had some finesse. So I picked up this rod, and I made like a cast with the head out. And I thought, oh, my God, do I love this rod. And I played with it for a half hour, and I went back, and I said, this is my rod. And he said, mm, yeah, probably. And I said, what? And he goes, we'll talk. And so the next year he was at the Sandy Clave and I got to play with it again. And as I played with it more and more and more, because if nobody had a rod out, I would take it down the river and cast with it. And so I probably cast it three hours over the clave. And I thought, you know, I'm going to tell him to make it 4% softer in the butt. <laughs> and then I thought, what the hell do I know? Yeah. Just have him build you this rod, keep your mouth shut, 
and you're going to love it. So I took it back, and it was my turn on the build schedule. I said, James, this is it. Build it just like this. And he said, nope. I said, what do you mean? He goes, I'm going to make it two inches longer and 5% softer in the butt, and you're going to like it even more. And he did, and I do. Huh. Um, it's, yep. It is just a phenomenal stick. Um, I only dry line fish on it. I could fish it all winter, but um, going back to Mr. Miser, I have two MKXs that I fish in the winter that – uh, I don't really have any desire for other winter rods. Um, so I keep that as my summer dry line rod and it just is a phenomenal cat. And the funny thing is the, what James referred to as plastic rods, the only rods that he, uh, fishes are, uh, Bob's MK rods. Mm. So there's some, I don't know tapers at all. What I like, I refer to it as stiff in the tip and junk in the trunk. Yeah. It's got a stiff tip. So it really picks up and, and holds a line. Um, and it, got flexed deep down right above the grip in the lower third of the rod that just whumps, just builds up the power and releases it beautifully. Yep. That's it. So back to rods. Yeah. Um, the first time Bob came back to Spay Nation, I was having lunch with him. He finished lunch and jumped up to go play with rods. I said, what rods do you like? And he said, there aren't any bad rods. Yeah. And he knows way more about rods than I do. He said, when he first started, there were tons of bad rods. Um, as a guy who loves fly rods and loves to fly cast, there are some really good rods yeah. and there are some adequate rods, some nice rods and, and really good rods. Um, I've, I'm partial to the builders here in the Northwest that have kind of been integral to the development of spay rods. Uh, Bob, Kerry Berkheimer, Gary Anderson. Um, they're all real small setups. Yeah. Um, some, Carrie's wrapping their own blanks. Bob and Gary are getting theirs made uh, overseas. Um, there's arguments for both. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't see any point in getting in the middle of it. They both, all three make spectacular rods. Um, Charles Gear is just taken over for uh, Gary. And uh, Nick Moses is just taken over for Bob. Mm-hmm. But both have apprenticed, both those guys have apprenticed to uh, Gary and Bob for years. And so there's the transition is seamless. Um, Carrie has a great operation going with several people. Um, kind of the, the secret to at least Gary and not the secret, but part of the game with Gary and Bob. And I actually think Temple Fork too is uh, Steve Godshall, hmm. um, who is a line wizard and a rod wizard. I think he helps a lot in developing the tapers. Um, so there's, there's some great builders out here. Beulah's down there. Yeah. Um, they make really nice rods. Um, Echo makes it affordable to get into it. Mm -hmm. Um, when I first got into it, I went spay crazy and didn't have a budget. So I went into spay pages and I think I went through 12 or 13 rods in about three years (laughs) where I'd buy a rod, fish it for six months three months. If I didn't like it, I'd sell it. I could pick up a used rod. And if you're not hard on it, um, you can sell it for what you paid for it. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I think is funny is people are always worried about the guarantee, but with most, uh, most of the rod companies guarantee or not, they can make you a new section. Um, I bought a broken Berkheimer and, uh, sent it in and had a fit, got a new tip section for like, I think $125. Mm-hmm. So I got a good deal on the broken rod and then, and had a good as new Berkheimer for not even two thirds of retail. 
Right. Um, and that, that, you know, if you have, if you have a miser and Anderson and Berkheimer and you want to sell it, you don't, you won't have a very long. Yeah. I mean, you, you can't get, I, you, I grew up going to auctions with my folks. And so, um, uh, my, my grandfather was a junk dealer in, in enterprise. Um, hmm. so I think I have that in me. You're not going to get like, you know, 80% of the value, but you're going to get 60%. Yep. Yep. No, so it's... take care of them, take good care of them. And that's how you find out what rods you like. Exactly. Cool. Cool. Well, uh, Richard, the problem uh, again today is I, I scheduled, uh, some, some calls later on. So I'm going to have to, uh, eventually well, cut, cut like this I off. warned you, I wander all, I wander all over the no, place. No, I know. So. I love this. I love this. This is one where we could definitely be like a, a Joe Rogan three hour conversation, but, uh, <laughs> I did want to, I did want to touch back on the, we talked about the dry fly a little bit. Maybe we could just get it. I have this little segment, the, the tips, t- uh, tips and tricks and stuff, but, um, uh-huh. can we talk maybe just a couple of tips again? So let's think of dry fly. If somebody's out there, they haven't really done much of that, uh, skating flies. Well, what, what, would you give them some it's, tips? It's funny. Um, there's a few videos around, uh, there's a fascinating one of some guys, um, two younger guys, that guide down in the North Umqua single hand spay, um, skating. And, and it's really popular down there to chug, to, to pop your fly. Yeah. Um, and, and it can be very effective. And I, I find it um, really irritating hmm. to do. <laughs> I yep. will do it in a pinch. I'll occasionally give it a bump. But um, I like uh, I kind of down and across, um, uh-huh. but I vary that a lot. I'll cast uh, directly across sometimes. Uh, sometimes I'm in, sometimes I don't. If a steelhead wants your fly, he can catch it. Yeah. Um, he, she. Uh, they can swim way faster than, than you can um, – skate unless you're really actively taking it away from them. Mm-hmm. So I like kind of a clean skate in that um, I, I find it keeps my mellow going. The, the reason I paint, the reason I like to run rivers, the reason I like to swing flies is all the same. It puts me in this really nice, mellow, meditative place. Mm-hmm. And I find chugging can get me out of that. It makes me, uh, there's something about it that just I find disruptive. Describe chugging. Um, or there's probably a video, um, but what, like popping your fly. Yeah, there, there like, is videos. There, uh, there's several different ones you can constant, see. Constant popping. Uh, constant or occasional. That's yeah. I'll do the occasional um, because you know, say you got a fish that's rolled once or twice at your fly. Um, put it over him and, and give it a pop. Give it a um, almost like you're popping a bass bug. Um, you probably what you're gonna do is just a real uh, somewhat aggressive. You're just trying to move the fly two inches. Yeah. So especially that's what the foam skaters were developed for that have the foam lip on them, that it'll, it'll cup water. Um, I'm just looking for a little disruption in it to kind of catch their attention. Um, Lee Spencer, that um, yeah. if he if you look at what he's tracked with all these fish rising over the years, um, they rise at sticks as much as anything. So if you have something floating over them that shows a sign of life, I think you have a chance of getting their attention. At the same time, if you're thrown awake, there's a sign of life there because sticks don't throw awake. So I actually don't think the pattern matters that much. I think what matters is the turbulence that's coming off that wake. I tend to like it kind of subtle. I don't want a a big bubbling thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I want, I like to look out and see like a little motorboat out there cruising along. Um, I'm not particular about my fly staying up constantly. If it drops half inch under the surface, I think from underneath there's still Mm -hmm. a wake showing in the turbulence. Um, I generally, but everything with me is only general because I don't really have a hard and fast rule. Um, I generally 
kind of quartering down or maybe a 60 degree angle down Mm -hmm. to have my fly swing across where I think is holding water. Um, And then to me, the constant debate, uh, setting the hook. I I don't set the hook. Mm. Uh, Let that reel be going before you move. Mm-hmm. Let your I love old clicker reels, um, and I like the reels screaming before I it'll even move much, because mm-hmm. you can you can take the fly out of the mouth, especially on a skater. They've come up out of the out of the depth, and they're going to turn around and go back to it. And if they're turning and they don't have a good mouth on that fly, and you set the hook, it's coming right out. Yeah. So if if you wait until that reel is turning, um, that's probably already lodged in the corner of their jaw. Yep. Perfect. That said, every once in a while you'll hook one right in the tip of their nose, oh, which yeah. is startling. You yeah. realize you barely hooked it. Huh. How do you know when to, so if you're out there, it sounds like you're usually doing this in the summer for summer steelhead. I mean, how do you know when to, when to skate versus when to just use a wet flyer? Does it, does it matter? Um, it's more, I think it's more philosophical. I think, you know, people say, well, I've never got one on a skater. I'm like, well, cause you probably didn't fish skaters. Um, the first time I fished the Deschutes was 11 years ago. And I was really fortunate that it was it coincided with the last year they had a really great return. The the judge uh, that was constantly arguing yeah. with the recovery okay. had insisted that they flush a lot of water over in the spring, and they had a they had a great return that year. And the very first fish I got on the Deschutes was on a foam skater, and I got it because I was fishing it. I think I would have caught that fish on a wet fly too. Yeah. But I had determined I wanted to fish the Deschutes. I wanted to fish a skater the first time I was there. And, uh, you know, confirmation bias. Once you got one, you're willing to try it. But if you're going to say, you know, try and skate flies for the last half hour of evening yeah. light or the first half hour of the morning, well, good luck. Yeah. You know, if, if you're going to skate flies, commit to it for a summer. Um, the other thing about skating is you get a real idea where your fly is all the time. I'm not obsessed with watching my fly all the time. I, I get as distracted as when I'm wet fly fishing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll look away. I'll watch stuff. I was uh, watching a coyote last two years ago. I had a coyote watching me, and I was watching the coyote. and had a great time, and I ended up catching a fish while I wasn't paying attention. Um, but you actually see where your fly is all the time, and it's amazing how long it takes in to swing below you. So all these times you think you've let your wet fly swing in and it's on the dangle below you, you'd be amazed how, how many times it's still 20 feet out because that last that last 10% of the swing takes forever to close. Mm-hmm. And if you have, in the wintertime, if you have fish in high water hugging the bank below you, uh, and you might not be getting Same your swing thing. into them. Same thing. So you, it, gives you, it gives you a really good training on where your fly is tracking. Yeah. Um, so my thing is once June hits, I'm going to start skating and I'm probably going to quit sometime in October. My, mm-hmm. my birthday is the first of October and I usually skate then, um, sometime in October I start feeling like, you know, the nights are cold and, yeah. um, I love scandy casting or, or this cast cast on a dry line. Um, and I never want to quit. And then I pick up my Skagit lines and I'm like, Oh my God, I forgot how much I love this. I know. So then I go to throwing tips and I'm happy as a clam too. Uh, so usually sometime in October, I'll switch back over to Wes. Gotcha. gotcha. Or, or I'll swing both. I'll swing through with a skater first and I'll put a poly on it. So I'm going to wet through. Yeah. Yeah. That's perfect. But you're not, you're not going to skate fish if you don't fish skaters. Yep. 
Gotcha. Okay. And, uh, and so what, and now fly. So I think the muddler is probably, if you had to pick a couple of your top flies for skating, the muddlers, what, is there any other one you'd throw out there? Well, I'm, I'm working on what I'm excited about, but I, I'm not ready to post it up yet. It's, I'm just calling it the hedgehog because it reminds me of my kids watching Sonic the Hedgehog. Um, the, uh, Lemire grease liner, uh, is a really good one. Thompson River Cavs. Todd Hirano comes up with one good skater after another. Mm. His Wang fly is oh, his cool. killer. Uh, he's got a new one that's kind of a combination of um, a bomber and a wolf uh, that's got some really great potential. Uh, my friend Matt McQueen ties a really nice one. I don't know if he, he's got a name for it. Um, what else? Colby Fish is a nice one. I can't remember the name. It's actually the same one that I got. The, there's there's one that's almost just a piece of foam just wrapped on top of uh, a tube. And it's actually what I got my first fly on on the uh, to shoots. And I can't or my fish fish on the shoots mm-hmm. with. And I can't remember the name of it. So it's kind of an old classic. I think it's a BC pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, but I right now, if I don't have my new one I'm playing with the hedgehog on, I'm kind of muddler on. Yeah. Um, people say, you know, what colors and, yep. you know, it's Purple. it's. <laughs> per, well, black, black, black with purple, black, yeah. black with blue, black, black with orange. What about red? Um, you know what? I've never caught fish on a red fly because I don't fish red flies, and I'm correcting that because yeah, uh, some some good, really effective steelheaders. Uh, my friend Josh Lynn swears by red. I, I had uh, uh, I had George George Cook was on, and I asked him uh, if we opened up your steelhead box right now, what it would look, you know, what what would it look like? And he's like, it'd be all red, be red flies. And, uh, skaters too, or wets? Uh, well, that's a good question. We didn't get into the skater versus wet. So I, yeah. See, again, I don't think on the skater, it makes that much difference. If you have a good V weight going, yeah. the, the, I think that's what the fish is targeting is there's exactly. something alive making that wake. Um, but yeah, uh, Josh swears by red. Um, and I know that, uh, Marty Shepard does too. Oh, Marty. Does too. Yeah. Yeah. What about, um, if somebody wanted to dig in, um, like resources wise, where, where would you point somebody? You mentioned a number of people here, but just like you know, as far as books, magazines, blogs, anything to, to learn about. Oh, skating? It's, it's funny. There's it's funny. There's so many good uh, steelhead books now. John Larison's book, I love his steelhead book. Mm-hmm. Um, Deck Hogan's book is really good. Um, Todd Hirano's blog is wonderful. Todd is obsessed with skating. Oh yes, um, yeah. Yeah, so you can on his blog. I can't remember the name of his blog, but if you look up, yeah, I'll, um, I'll Todd Verano steelheading, Todd Verano skating, it'll pop up really well, really yeah. quick. Um, it's it's funny because I'm my internet is I I took uh, three computer classes in college uh, when I was in school for business. It was COBOL, Fortran, and Basic. I had nothing to do with computers. I left my job at a, a job at an ad agency before they computerized. I didn't buy a computer until the internet launched, and uh, I was out of business hmm. um, because I had to learn how to use them. I so I'm not that tuned in still to websites. Uh, yeah. So there, I know there's some great ones. I I spay pages. If yeah. it's not as active as it used to be. Um, but if you go in and do searches on there, you can probably find the answer to everything. Yep. Um, yep. It, it, when I first got into it 15 years ago, uh, spay pages, I mean, Ed Ward used to hang out on spay oh, pages. Yeah. yeah, it was huge. Uh, and, and you could put a question up and 
you'd have Ed Ward and Dak Hogan answering you. That's pretty awesome. Um, yep. I was kind of crushed to find out I'm older than those guys. Oh, you are. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that's pretty funny. Yeah. Well, we, we all come at different levels. You know, the, somebody but, right now is listening to this as we talk and they've never fished for steelhead before. And, and, and they're going to become one of the great steelhead fit. You know what I mean? Like, it's, yeah. it's, it doesn't matter the, if you're just starting now. Yeah. The thing that's difficult now, and the thing that I really benefited from being in New York when I was getting started, is I quit, when I went through a divorce, I quit fishing for about six years. Because oh, wow. fishing is so uh, quiet that uh, I would just get depressed because I was just destroyed without having my kids with me. I had my kids every weekend. But I, I didn't have them with me all the time. And that's yeah. the only thing I've ever known for certain that I wanted to do in life was be a father. Mm-hmm. Um, because I have, I, have, I have so many younger siblings that I just uh, hmm. love to death. And my older sister too. But I mean, my older sister and I did a babysitting. You know, I changed diapers by the time I was eight probably. Um, so, and this was back when they were a pain in the ass to change. Oh, yeah. Um, but uh, I wanted to be a father. And so without my kids, I'd go fishing and I would just – you know, it was like going to the pit of despair. And I'd always wanted to try kayaking and I started kayaking. Paddling whitewater, you can't look away. You can't think about anything else All or right. you're gonna get your ass handed to you. So for several years I I uh bounced back and forth between that and uh wilderness canoe trips huh. and uh found a better solution. And then I wanted to start fishing again <clears throat> and I was still uh Ever since a kid, growing up here as a kid, I wanted to swing flies. I, back in New York, the thing that was really popular was bobber fishing and fishing glow bugs. And mm-hmm. I just wanted to swing flies. So my f- first steelhead was on a uh, fully dressed Green Highlander. Hmm. Uh, my second steelhead was on a skunk. And then somehow I wandered over to string leeches. But I was yeah. just swinging flies. Yeah, in New York. And I used to go to the salmon, but yeah. it got so crowded and aggressive that it took – the fun out of it for me um and i started fishing some smaller streams that i was still to this day won't name because they yeah. were kind of overrun by the bloom of steelhead alley and uh that's where i learned to swing flies and the thing was you could go out and in a day catch half a dozen fish um and you got feedback there was a pool that i used to call the schoolhouse because when the fish were in you could see them lined up on these shale shelves holding and there'd be six fish in there and you could swing a fly through there and watch them react to your swing speed. So if you're swinging too slow, they just let it go by. Mm. If you're swinging too fast, they let it go by. If you swung at a, a swung at just the right speed, two or three fish would peel off and start tracking your fly. And you could watch in clear water, 50 feet out, a fish swell its gills and pop, pull a fly in and take your fly when you had the swing speed right. And that was depth and swing speed. Yeah. And I still to this day... I'm not convinced that fly pattern matters that much. No. Um, no. I think it needs to be big enough to make some turbulence when the water's off color and small enough not to spook the fish when the water's clear. And at the same time, there's some aggression in there too. So there's times when the water's clear, more clear, and a bigger fly will just get pounded. Um, yep. But it's, it's I, I think, swing speed. But the thing, the point I was trying to make is back there, I could go out and every time have a chance of catching two, four, five, six fish and getting feedback. Now you're getting to a point where, you know, as a, as a rookie yeah. out here in the West, um, you know, a few fish a season 
So I'm going a lot of times without any feedback, going on what I learned previously. So now it's tough. I think uh, one of the things that I really like about steelhead fishing out here is how welcoming people are and how willing they are to share. And it's, it's, you know, if you can afford a guided trip, great, but you'll find people to fish with, people to visit with, people to watch. I can't tell you how many times I've been fishing down in the North Umpqua and turned around and found somebody standing and watching and I'll come out and say, I'm sorry, you know, I, you could swing behind me or we could talk or what. Yeah. No, I was just watching. I was like, what are you watching? Like, well, I just started. I didn't really know. Yep. And we'll have a, you know, half hour conversation where we have a beer there you go. and just have a, you know, I don't want to, I'm not a guide. I don't, I don't, first off, I'm not qualified to be, but I also am not probably mentally set no. up to sit there and babysit somebody, no. but I'll more than willingly sit around a campfire and talk about how to approach a run. I mean, that's, that's what all of us who fish together talk about anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It's just fishing stories. It is. That's, and that's why you're, uh, the, as a podcaster, that's why it's amazing that you have the, the rambler going. And when did you start that? When was the first episode? Um, I think in May yeah. last year. Oh, so 20, yeah. 2019, May, May 2019. 20. I think that's when we did yeah. it. It was Thanksgiving the year before that Emily and Todd, that's kind right. of harassed me into it. So do you um, do, uh, is this, do you do it every week or when do you publish? Uh, we, uh, every two weeks. Every two weeks. Yeah. I think we're just coming up on episode 30. Gotcha. Episode um, 30. Yep. There you go. Yeah. It's, it's part, part of the thing is if, you know, if I was doing it, um, more full time, I might do more. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, trying to fit it in between painting and, and fishing. Yeah. Um, it's two weeks seems about right. Yeah. Um, so how often do you post? Uh, two weeks, right? Weekly. Weekly? Yeah, I've posted. I started the first one dropped in uh, uh, December 2017, and I haven't missed a week since then. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, we did, we did have uh, twice. We um, I think when COVID first hit, we missed about three. And then uh, when I went on my painting blitz, because I tend to work quite a bit anyway, but um, when I come up with either a show or – uh, I got to do a run to, cause I twice a year I'll drive a loop around to galleries and mm. drop new work. And, uh, I kind of paint like a fiend getting ready for that. I try to not have that interfere with the fall, but, uh, um, I really ramp up. Where, where can I, we I, find, I, where, where can we find your work, uh, your art? Um, well, South Lima Steelhead Society, uh, has some fishing related stuff, but most of my work is on richardcharrington.com. Okay. Um, I have four bodies of work uh, that have more to do with outdoors than than fishing. Although it was funny, I had a show several years ago of really big landscape paintings, and uh, a guy walked in and says, "How come your big landscapes that don't have rivers in them make me think you're on your way to a river?" And I said, "Well, because I'm usually on my way to a river." <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, the, between those two is uh, cool. Everything I've got out there. All right. Perfect. Well, I'll put links to, to that and everything else. And yeah. And I guess, like you said, the, um, the river rambler.com is, uh, you can track yeah. down your podcast episodes and who, who do you have, uh, what, what can we expect the next, um, you know, six months or so um, as far as guests and things like that or topics more of the, the same, right? Uh, more steelhead. Yeah. Jason Rolf was just up. I was just on, oh, yeah. um, uh, he just launched, launched on Tuesday. Two weeks ago was, uh, Josh Mills. Um, coming up is J. Michelle Swope. Um, okay. I'm trying to think. 
I'm in conversations with two or three people right now. I want to have them lined up before sure. I say. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but like, like I said, with me, it's um, it might be somebody you've heard of. It might be somebody I met on the river uh-huh. um, that I just had fun visiting with. So it's uh, um, it's not any industry stuff. I don't, you know, it's when I hear people talk about the industry, I'm always kind of caught off guard. Yeah. Because uh, I, I always forget that it's a business. Because to know. me, it's just, I just love to fish. I got a chance to do uh, artisan residency at Bristol Bay Lodge that uh, my friend Bob White lined up. And I was there with Jeff Kennedy and Chris Clark and Bob and myself. And when, when Bob checked with me, uh, if I'd be interested, I said, well, of course I'd be interested, but what if I don't find anything I want to paint? Um, because that's okay. And I said, but you know, you guys are all supporting artists. I'm not a supporting artist. I'm a landscape painter. And he goes, that's okay. And I said, but if I just come and fish and he goes, we just want to put you up here and see if anything comes of it. Hmm. So I went with this idea that I may or may not have anything I wanted to paint. And the thing about Alaska is once you find fish, you're going to catch fish. Yeah. And, so depending on how you're fishing, you know, once I, once I catch eight or 10 fish, depending on what they are, I might've caught enough fish and I start looking around it. Well, in Alaska, you can put me outside of Fairbanks or Anchorage. You can probably put me any place and in about 30 seconds. I can find something I want to paint. Hmm. And I realized that when I was there, I actually want to paint more than I want to fish. And I want to fish a lot, mm-hmm. but I actually want to paint more. And so, mm-hmm. uh, I, I tend to work too much uh, because I want to. Um, so you're a and I'm trying to trying to fit enough fishing in between. You're a painter. It's, I love that. I love the way you put that because that's come up, uh, and I've noted this before. But John Girock we had on way back, uh, and and I asked him, you know, are you are you a painter or not? Are you a painter? Are you a, a fly fisherman or a writer first? And and he was like, well, I'm a I'm a writer first, and a lot of people kind of see that as a little disappointing right they want to think of john as a, as a fly fisherman but you're kind of the same you're, you're well art. the funny thing about it is you know people people say you know i wasn't inspired I, I didn't find my muse blah 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 or they come up it's it's really common for people to say you know do you want to be part of the show we're doing a theme i'm like no i don't want anything to do with that because i already have my themes yeah i already, I already have a reason um oh i'm trying to think of really famous Chuck Close, uh, an art an art world icon, mm-hmm. said, uh, "Inspiration is for amateurs. You get up and work." Yep. Um, I was raised by my by my parents to be a worker. Yep. Um, in fact, I I had a little piece in Swing the Fly a year or so ago about um, my dad and I had the same birthday, and every year I'd call him on my birthday, and uh, I'd always just come off a working blitz where I'd worked for like maybe two or three months, pretty much every day. Hmm. And because I, I tried it, my birthday is first of October, and I tried to have the fall open to fish. So I'd, I'd take and fish on my birthday, and I'd call my dad before I'd get in a river. And my folks would get me on, so they're both on the phone. And I'd say, what are you doing? I'd say, I'm, I'm going to fish. And, and always, every single time, shouldn't you be working? <laughs> and I'm like, for Christ's sake, it's my birthday. Gosh. And But they're my parents. I, I've never, I my little brother was always great speaking truth to power. I would never backtalk Finally, I was 50 years old. It was the year I was on the shoots. It occurred to me, why don't I just lie? Yeah. I said, oh, yeah, I'm working. <laughs> I told him about all the stuff I was working on back in New York while I was on the banks of the shoots. And uh, then I hung up the phone and I went and fished for a week. Yeah. Well, you then are I drove working. Home and worked. You are working. You're, you're fishing. Well, it is. But, it, yeah. 
What is funny, that's that's part of it too, is that when I'm on a river, um, I'm always thinking about work. I uh, I I can't turn it off. That's, yeah. I, that's how I interpret the world is visually. That's it. And uh, I break everything down into shapes in my head and oh wow are you taking notes i i do i do sketches yeah. um and my my sketches a lot of times people would not know how i got from my sketch to a finished painting but if i have a photograph i will do a bad painting um i work from real pretty loose pencil sketches so you're literally you know kind of always working not really but i mean i think of times right i mean we grew up in this time and you're a little bit older than me but I mean, vacationing, right, and doing that stuff. I mean, there was a time back in the day of this country where people didn't vacation. They worked. and um, Oh, yeah. Right? Well, and I have to admit, when I was an illustrator, um, it was way easier because, um, you know, each job had a window. And actually, an illustration, if you don't hit your deadline, you're done. Oh. If you miss two or three deadlines. Before the internet launched, your market was mostly local. Huh. And so... Um, I would have half a dozen small jobs every month for, for the most part. It was always dead in the summer because people want a vacation. Uh, Kodak, Xerox, and Bausch & Lomb were the big employers in Rochester, and people went on vacation and no work got done. And so as you're a freelancer, no work got done. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I would take a good share of the summer off, check in. Uh, I'd just check my answering machine. And uh, if no work was in, I'd take another week. And the thing about that is when a job was over, you were done working. So I still painted on my own, even though I didn't sell anything. I just was, I loved to paint. And so I was working on my own landscape painting. And uh, at the same time, my jobs were very broken up by deadlines. And so once I was done, I had my all my deadlines met, I could plan a trip. And uh, I'd go on 10-day, two-week canoe trips. I'd take my kids on a week-long canoe trip. Mm -hmm. I'd take them for a week to visit my family. Um, but now... I don't have clients anymore. I just have to get work done, get enough work out in the world and hope enough people see them that want them, that everything adds up, which is a very tenuous way to make a living. But at the same time, uh, there's no reason to shut it off. And I have a hard time with that. That's one of the reasons I love to go to a river and stay a few days. Because yeah. I'll, I'll do some sketches, but I don't have to hustle back home off the river no. and try and get two or three hours of work in. That's sweet. That's sweet. It sounds like you've got a pretty pretty amazing uh, setup. I mean, it, it, obviously it's a little uh, different, but yeah. Well, the, one of my rules, my, my buddy Colby has a great setup where he's fishing a lot right now and he's, he's younger. He's, he's the age of my kids. Yeah. But, um, the thing I, I said to him is don't burn out. You can actually burn yourself out. Um, I always want to quit fishing when I still wish I was fishing. Yeah. I'll go home and get back to work. Cause I don't ever want to have somebody say, hey, do you want to go fish? And go, nah, I'm not really into right. it. I don't want to, I, I fish too right. much lately. I don't want to go. A steelhead, like a, you're a steelhead bum, right? Yeah. Well, and I don't think I can. My, my buddy Coop back in New York, uh, when he finally retired, I said, what are you going to do? He said, I'm going to fish full time. I said, you can't. And he said, yeah, watch me. And I said, okay, fine. And we had lunch three weeks later. And I said, so what are you up to? He goes, shut up. And I said, what? He goes, I don't want to talk about it. And I said, what are you talking about? And he goes, I'm looking for a job. I can't fish full time. <laughs> and I said, no, you got, you got to, I, at least yeah. if people who can more power to them, yeah. I can't, I need a purpose beyond my fishing. Well, what you hear mostly at what, what I've heard from people and I've you know had a lot of people on that are in the industry or whatever, but 
you know, and, and small companies too, but you know, they start these companies cause they love fly fishing and they get into it and then they realize like they're doing less fishing than they used to do when they weren't in the business of fly fishing. Yeah. So there, yeah. there's that too. And I don't know. I mean, it sounds like, sounds like you've got things, <clears throat> you know, there's some work that you got to do, but you got it pretty, pretty well lined out, which is, I, yeah. I actually, I actually do. I do like my life. Um, and most of the reason I work right too much right now is that, like I said, my, uh, career kind of flagged while I was sick. I just wasn't as productive as I had been before. And oh, yeah. I'm getting back to that now. Um, so I find a couple more galleries. I, I hoping I'll find a little more life flexibility again. Um, I'd like to get back to, I think like eight to 10 weeks a year off is optimal. Yeah. yeah that sounds, um, that sounds and the rest right. of the time I'd like to work. Uh, well, I, maybe 12. So I have yeah, enough grandparents. 12 is time. good. 12 is good. I think that's what the I think that's something like what they do in Europe. Maybe somewhere there, it's a little better than than the few weeks. Yeah, I think they, I think they do a way better job than we do here. Yeah, yeah, um, they, do. they do. Yeah, I haven't figured out the having a paycheck on your vacation, but if the paycheck's in between or enough, then yeah. I don't care. You don't care. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, Richard, I think I'm going to leave it. We. Um, yeah. No is, kidding. I warned you. I. I this is, but I, I we didn't even talk of. about dogs either because I wanted to talk about your dogs. I think. Do you, Do you have oh, a, a couple of names there? What What do you got going? Uh, well, I have the big nugget. And the White Devil, who are their their names are Ulysses and Luna. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But Yuli has like fifteen names, and Luna uh, has twelve, I think. And somehow they respond to all of them. Um, but yeah. uh, they are the the company I have most. And just as a complete spontaneous shout out, uh, we got evacuated last week. Oh yeah. And. Um, my friend Matt McQueen had said, come stay with me, and we headed that way. But he had said that like five days before, said, if you get evacuated, and I didn't think we were going to get evacuated. So between the time he said that and the time we got evacuated, he was on the river and didn't have any uh, cell service. <clears throat> so we ended up uh, at a loss for a moment, and then my friends Rob and Aaron Perkin uh, sent me a note and said, what's going on with you? And I said, oh, we're evacuating. He said, come stay with us. And so we did, and they have Cooper, um, who is a nine-pound Chihuahua. My dog Luna is sixty pounds, and my dog Yuli is one hundred twenty pounds. And uh, my Instagram, my personal one, is RC Harrington. Mm -hmm. There's a River Rambler Instagram and a Richard C Harrington Art Instagram, but on the RC Harrington one is a is a picture Aaron took of Cooper with my two dogs that I think is my favorite dog picture ever taken this little nine pound dog confronted with 200 pounds of dog oh cool and he was he was a total gentleman gosh he was a wonderful he was a wonderful host if a little put out yeah no. what kind of what kind of dog do you have well that's the thing we were in this really crazy time because our dog of 15 years we just had to put her you know oh yeah yeah it was really tough because she was her mind, I mean, totally helped. I mean, just very amazing, but her hips were out. She could barely walk. Yeah. And she was just at that yeah. point where, you know, if we go any longer. So the great thing is we had an amazing vet that came over to our house and, and we had yeah. the kids there and we did the whole thing and it was really tough. And, but you know, we buried her, tough. we buried her in an amazing place. And here's the crazy thing about animals. And I'll tell you, we weren't going to get another animal right away, but, but this cat shows up and it's exact same colors <laughs> as our dog and it's a male and it's just, and it shows up like out of nowhere and we realize like this is the same animal. It, it's literally canoe was our dog. It's literally that uh, dog reincarnated as a cat. We, we had, uh, a cat, uh, we have two cats now, but, uh, we had a cat, uh, that we named Paul Lebowski, 
um, <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe because he had a soul patch, and Lebowski because he was uh, the filthiest cat you've ever seen. He was 16 pounds. Um, at the time, we had four other cats. But when Poe was in the house, um, we only had one cat because the other cats hid. He dogs we had at the time. Um, and he was uh, he was a Rottweiler shoved in a cat suit. We lived out in this little farm town, and he would disappear for two or three days at a time, just hunting out back, completely surrounded by coyotes. He never got he died of cancer when he was about eight. Huh. But um, I would actually be out with the dogs snowshoeing. Sometimes we'd be out walking two miles up behind the house, and I'd see some bushes up ahead move, and I'd see that orange and white tail flick back and forth, and know he was setting up an ambush. He would ambush the dogs to amuse himself. Oh, wow. He would make the two That's dogs cool. jump out of their skin. <laughs> and then he would come over and rub on me and flop on his back for waiting for the two dogs to come up and adore him properly. Amazing. And then he'd wander off while we finished the walk and went home. He might not come home for another two days. That's um, so cool. He was an absolute marauder, but a wonderful. He was So he was actually a dog. Yeah, um, a dog in a cat's body. Cats, cats are awesome, but yeah. uh, dogs, dogs are different. I know cats are cats are great because they, they just they just let them do their thing and yeah, they aren't like the no maintenance pet. No. We have two fairly demanding ones, and they still take a lot less interaction than dogs. So give yourself some time. Give yourself enough some time, and you'll find probably we, every time I think about a dog I want, another dog shows up in my lap. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, we're not too worried about. It. We know we'll when the time's right, we'll get that that next dog. So, um, so good, yeah. right, Richard? Well, I, and I didn't even get into the ask a steelhead segment, which uh, maybe we'll have to next time if we could do another one of these. We'll, we'll get into that. Uh, That'd be fun. I I, I warned you. I, I don't go in a straight line. Yeah, no, it's been <laughs> fun. It's been fun. So uh, I'll just put a, the the riverrambler.com if they want to find you and. Um, so yeah, we're good to go. I'll let you get out of here. I want to uh, say thanks for ha- coming on and doing the podcast. Uh, the River Rambler is oh, awesome. Thanks for thanks for your interest. It was, yeah, it was fun. Yeah, yeah. No, um, it's it's good. Have a great day, man. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes, all the links we covered, just go to wetflyswing.com/slash/one-five-nine. If you'd like to support the podcast and our local community of companies, head over to wetflyswing.com/slash/members and uh, and sign up and join. And want to thank you in advance if you had a chance uh, to join or if you're already a member. Thanks again for stopping by today to check out the show. I'm looking forward to catching up with you soon and hope to maybe see you on the river. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. And if you found this episode helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. And now, is there a social platform that you're out looking at right now? Twitter. If you are, drop me Twitter. Westside. That was reverse. And now, here's forward. Is anyone on a social platform other than Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram? If you are, drop me a link on Twitter.